the true, true story of our Lord Jesus Christ's birth. Amen. From the Word of God. The Word of God declares and teaches us from Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise. When as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man, and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privily. But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. And she shall bring forth the son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Now all this was done, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. Then Joseph, being raised from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord had bidden him, and took unto him his wife, and knew her not till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. Let us pray. O oh, Father, we give you praise and glory and honor with much thanksgiving for your gift, your gift of salvation in and by and through the finished work of your Son. Father, be with the speaker, be with the preacher today that he would cut it right that and give all who are here and all who are listening ears to hear. May your people be built up. May those who hear be convicted. May your word accomplish the purpose for which you send it forth. And may you be glorified through the preaching of it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, so uh, grateful, so thankful to the Lord this morning that he would gather us all together on this morning. And again, the, uh, the weathermen, the Lord controls all the weather, and again, they, they missed it. It's amazing, stunningly, isn't it, how God just speaks and, um, and things work. And again, so grateful that the Lord would be so kind to bring us all together this morning. An old Puritan once said this, the virgin birth is posted on guard at the door of the mystery of the incarnation. And none of us must think, brethren, of hurrying past it. We must never do that. It stands on the threshold of the New Testament. It is blatantly supernatural, and it defies all of our rationalism. Brethren, again, such beautiful words from this old dead guy. It informs us that all that follows belongs to the same order as itself. And if we find it offensive, there is no point in proceeding any further. And again, brother, what is he saying? That if one doesn't trust and believe what the scripture says concerning the Lord Jesus Christ and him putting on flesh, the incarnation of God coming and condescending himself down, then we might as well just close our books and go home. Amen? It's a stunning thing, brother. When you consider this, I want you to think about this for just a moment. 
I looked, I don't usually look at polls, I don't look at stuff like that much, but I found it interesting that uh, the latest poll, which is from 2017, a stunning thing, they asked Americans and the nuns, the religious nuns, those who are not affiliated with any kind of church or anything like that, they said, uh, who believe in the narrative of the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ has decreased significantly from 2014. Now think about this for a moment. It's 2023. In 2017, it went down from 73% to 57%, which is a 16% decrease in the truth of the narrative of Christ in just three years. Now think about this for a moment, brother. Are we surprised? Are you shocked by that? Especially when you consider this, brethren, that day after day, week after week, now year after year, Satan's uh, preachers across their pulpits have continually degraded the word of God, degraded the truthfulness of the Lord Jesus Christ, his life, his finished work, all of it. It's a stunning thing when you consider that. They've been opening their, if I can say this in a kind way, they're unholy yaps for years doing this and continuing to downgrade the Lord Jesus Christ. Think about this. Now, Bible colleges, I, I happen to go to what was a very good one, remotely, of course, Bob Jones University, a very sound Bible college, and there's many of them. There's a few of them out there yet, but most of them is a stunning thing. They will take a young person into their college, and they'll degrade the Word of God. They'll take it down so low that they leave, and you end up like Andy Stanley. Amen? It's a stunning thing when you consider this, when you understand what's taking place. It does matter, brethren, how the Lord Jesus Christ entered into our world. How when he put on flesh and he came, and it's, and it's an important doctrine that one must cleave and hold on to. I say to you this morning that America, for sure, has indeed arrived and continues to spiral into the abyss of a post-Christian nation. This is the very thing our founding fathers were extremely concerned about when the Lord Jesus Christ wasn't specifically mentioned, of course, in our founding doctrine, doctors, documents. But hence, brethren, for such a time as this. <laughs> Isn't this glorious? God has, by his good pleasure, by his good providence, placed us here together in this time, in this era, in this, if you will, this de devolving of our own nation. And he has brought us here into his glorious word in Matthew chapter 1, as we look and consider the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 1, he lays the first stone with the Genesis language. And again, he speaks here just like he does in Genesis chapter 5. He speaks of the book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And he, he lays that, begins to lay that stone right there. And in verses 2 through 17, he gives us a succession of people in Jesus' genealogy. Again, if you count it, actually, there's 42 generations that are there, although there are some that are missed, not because... God wanted it missed because, but that was a Jewish. They did that sometimes to get to the point. So we see generation after generation, which leads directly to the Lord Jesus Christ's adoptive father, Joseph. And he's one of the subjects this morning we're going to look at. Joseph, the man that God would use to be the stepfather of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Think of that for a moment, brethren, as we're going to consider this. And in verses 18 through 25, Matthew transitions from, uh, to the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ, a birth unlike any other. 
brethren. A birth that is unique in all of time and history and eternity itself. A very unique birth. In fact, it's a birth, brethren, this morning that, if you will, demands from us a clear exegetical understanding of these holy eight verses that we're going to look at this morning. Now, let me just say this. Why is this so important? Because over the centuries, evangelical, and I'm going to separate them out. There's evangelical theologians who have tried some funny business with this. There's also some Catholic doctrine that is funny with this, with this particular text. But over the years, they have developed many elaborate theories concerning his birth. It's a stunning thing to consider. I want you to listen to this for just a moment. And they're trying to show that Jesus had to be born of a virgin to avoid the stain of Adam's original sin. Therefore, sin is only passed on by the father, not the mother's. <laughs> well, I'm sorry to inform you, evangelical, that's not in the Bible anywhere. That sin is just simply passed on by the father and not the mother. You don't find that anywhere. And not to be outdone, the Roman Catholic Church, as you know, invented this doctrine of the Immaculate Conception. And you think to yourself, well, Jesus' birth, it wasn't Immaculate Conception. That's not what they're saying. They're saying that Mary was conceived in such a way by divine grace that she bypasses all of the sinful fallenness of Adam. Brethren, the Bible does not teach that either. And again, this is why it's so important that we take the text this morning as we go down through it and we just look and say, what is the text actually telling me? What is this scripture systematically telling me concerning this most glorious event in time and history? And this really is what's important for us. And what ends up happening when you feel that somebody besides Christ is sinless, and that's where you have to go, amen? You have to put Mary somewhere in a place where the Bible doesn't put her, and it elevates her above all of other mankind. You literally have to turn her into a co-redemptrix, which is what they've done, where she lives again in a special place of sinlessness, apart from every other human being that's ever lived. But that's not what Matthew does at all, right, brethren? He doesn't show us the uniqueness of Mary. And I'm not saying, I'm not bashing Mary this morning. I'm simply saying that's not his focal point. His focal point is on the uniqueness of who? The uniqueness of Christ. And if we had time this morning, which we don't, and again, my brain just thinks theologically, if you go to Luke chapter 1, verses 46 and 47, you'll see there that Mary offers up, amen, she says specifically, amen, I rejoice in God my Savior. What is she saying there, brethren? She's recognizing and realizing that she too needs a Savior. Now, if you're sinless, you don't need a Savior. The other thing she does in Luke, chapter 2, verses 23 and 24, you'll see there. Again, if we had time, I'll just kind of briefly explain it to you. What you see there is that Jewish people, when they would have children, there was four things they would do. They would take them to the temple. They would name them, which we're going to look at this morning. They would do those things. And one of the things the parents would always do is they'd offer up a pigeon and two turtle doves. Now, if you go to Leviticus, you know what that is. They're offering up, as God designed in Leviticus, they're offering up a sin offering for themselves, a turtle dove and a pigeon because they were poor, and that was commanded by God in the law. So what's Mary doing? Why is she offering up and Joseph offering up a sin offering for themselves if you're sinless? That's, that's not at all what the Bible teaches. This is why, brethren, again, to have proper understanding concerning what we're reading here is so vital to us because it's under attack. Now, let me show you what they did. Look at Matthew chapter 2. Look at verse number 9. Here's really what the center of Matthew's 
wants to draw our religious affections to. Look there again, Matthew chapter 2, look at verse number 9. And when they heard the king, uh, they departed, and lo, the star which they saw in the east went before them, till it came and stood over the, where the young child was. Now Jesus, again, it doesn't say baby, he's a young child. He's well on two years old now. Time has elapsed from Matthew chapter 1. He's not a baby anymore, but he's, he's a young child. Look what it says there, verse 10. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. And when they were come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped her. No, they bypassed her and went right to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is God himself. Amen. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. So again, brethren, it is understanding that we have to understand that again, Mary, God chose Mary to bring forth the seed of Christ. That is unique in history, but it's not something where she should be elevated above what the Bible actually teaches us. Now again, over and over again, this is my long introduction <laughs> to the text. My long introduction, you've got to lay the groundwork out there, amen? Over and over again in our text, brethren, he emphasizes a single all-important reason. Not that Jesus was sinless because of the virgin birth, and this is important again, brethren, but that the virgin birth is a sign from God. That the virgin birth is a sign from God, an infallible sign from God. That the Lord Jesus Christ is the son, sinless Son of God who came to save us from our sin. That's what the virgin birth means. That's what it is. We know, brethren, that Jesus is sinless. That he was indeed pure and holy all of his life. From the moment of conception, from the moment of birth, from the moment of childhood, from the moment till he went to the cross, he was perfectly sinless in all, again, I say it all the time, in all his mind, all his heart, everything that he did was sinless and perfect. Every second, every minute, every day, every hour, every month, every year. Perfect, sinless, holy, uh, separated unto God as the perfect sacrifice. And this really is what we're looking at. Many, many, many Old and New Testament verses teach us and make that abundantly clear. We don't need to, brethren, elaborate and come up with extra biblical theories to prove, but what we really need and what the text is really telling us this morning, brethren, is how one is saved from their sins. And this really is the context of the context. How is God going to save his people from their sins? And ultimately, brother, this is what, uh, as you consider this and look at this, we look at this, that's the central issue. And it's into that universal problem that the angel comes and he tells Joseph and he gives us the essential answers to that question. How is God, sinless God, going to save his people from their sins? And brethren, there's nothing more to the music of one's ears. A child of God, a lost sheep whom God opens their eyes and their ears to hear when you hear the Lord Jesus say, your sins are forgiven you. There's nothing that can be more important, nothing. This life is ebbing ever quickly away. As I was telling Wendy, went to the doctor last week, had some weird thing growing on my face. I mean, I don't know, I'm getting older. And I told the doctor, I said, yeah, you know, when you get older, parts fall off. And sometimes you got to get parts cut off. And that's what happens. Weird things growing all over the place. It's a strange thing. But your body's breaking down, brethren. And this is eternal stuff. 
This is God's eternal business that we're dealing with here this morning. One must always be careful. Now look there, Matthew chapter 1. Look at verse number 18. We're just going to spend a little time together from a practical and certainly a most exegetical, theological point of view this morning. Look at verse number 18. Look what the Bible says. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise. When his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph before they came together. Now, brethren, as we look at this, he begins, uh, Matthew really begins here with the narrative concerning the holy elements of Christ's incarnation. He lays it out there. He says, if you really want to know the truth, and Howard said it before he read the scriptures, if you really want to know the truth concerning the elements of the birth of Christ, read here. And that's literally what he's saying. If you want to know what happened and, and exactly how God played and worked this out, read right here. It's a stunning thing. And you know, the first thing he pens is the notification of the arrival in real earthly time of God's infallible sign that he gave 734 years earlier. And I want us to read that together. I want us to go back in time, about 734 years. This is what separates the Bible and God's word from every other quote-unquote holy book out there is prophecy. God decrees something, and you know what? Whether it's 100 years or 300 years, or in this case, 734 years later, it comes to pass precisely exactly as God's word says. Look at Isaiah chapter 7. You knew this is where I was going, didn't you? 734 years back in time. Go back here with me to the book of Isaiah chapter 7. And again, we must be careful when we read the text. Because one of the things liberals like to do, those who do not believe in the word of God, and I put, you know, again, I'll mention his name again, Andy Stanley, and several of these quote-unquote evangelicals who have completely disregarded the word of God. Listen to what the text says. Look at verse 14. Again, 734 years earlier, the Bible says in verse 14, Therefore the Lord himself shall give you what? A sign. You see, this is what the virgin birth is about. We know, again, Christ is sinless. He had to be sinless, but that's not what Matthew is trying to draw out of the text. Here it is a sign. God is telling them, when you see this virgin that has this child, she is the sign. It is the sign of how God is going to save his people. Look at, behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Of course, we know what that word means, God with us. Amen? If you look here in chapter 7, that's talking about Christ. If you go across to chapter 8, look at chapter 8 there. Verse 7 is all about the virgin birth of Christ. Look at chapter 8. Look at verse 8. And he shall pass through Judea. He shall overflow and go over. He shall even reach uh, even to the neck and the stretching out of the wings that shall fulfill the breath of the land. What? Oh, Emmanuel. This is the Father. Jesus is called Emmanuel in chapter 7. Father God is called Emmanuel in chapter 8. Look down there just a little bit, verse number 10. Take counsel together, it shall come to naught. Speak the word, and it shall not stand. For God is with us. The Son's going to be with us. He's going to put on flesh and come. The Father's with us. So you see here again. Now when he quotes it here in our text, which we're going to look at in just a moment, you have to understand. When non-Bible believers look at Isaiah chapter 7, they will say, well, virgin just means a young woman. And it does. And there's several places in the scripture where it means a young woman. But brethren, what do we always say? 
What do we always say? Context, context, context. What does the Bible actually say? I'm glad you asked about this virgin. Is she just a young woman? Is Because again, as we look in our text, uh, before she gave birth to her firstborn son, the liberals say, well, she might have gave birth to a woman. She might have given birth to a girl. I mean, you brothers, this is where it goes, down that slippery slope. But context, context, context. Was she a virgin? Was she really a virgin? Was she one that had no relations with a man before Christ was born? Yes. And how do we know this? Because the scripture clearly tells us. Look at Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Again, the Holy Spirit puts words in here to help us to see this. Look what he says there in verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise when his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph. Before they what? Came together. Well, maybe she had a girl then. Maybe she had a girl before the boy. And again, brother, I'm just saying, this is the nonsense you hear and see concerning the holiness of the birth of Christ and how it's whittled and taken away. Look at verse 22 of our text. Look there. Now all this was done that it might fulfill which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet. Who was that? Isaiah, right? Saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. That's Christ. That's Isaiah chapter 7. God, the fathers in 8. This is Christ, which being interpreted as God with us. Look there, if you would, down there, just a little farther, verse 25. And knew her not. Do you see this? Before they came together, knew her not. The text tells us that, yes, Mary was a young maiden. <clears throat> she was indeed a virgin in that context, but she's also in the context of our text, a virgin who has never had relations with a man. She is indeed a young maiden who is indeed a virgin who is going to miraculously have the Lord put in the embryo of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're going to see how God does that as well. It's not filthy. It's not unholy like the Mormons say, right? Oh, we're all gods having relationships with one another, creating more gods. No, nothing even clear or close to that. This is a holy occasion. The literal virgin birth of the Lord Jesus Christ was and is the infallible sign from God and to the world that Jesus is the sinless Lamb of God who's going to, as John said, take away the sins of the world, the sins of his people. This is what the virgin birth is about. Jesus himself, brethren, as we know, God provided him himself, which is really quite amazing. And it's the final Offering for all of men's sins. You know what Spurgeon said? He spoke of when Jesus came and when he was born, he lived his life, he died. He put all of the altars of the world out. All the altars that were burning in the Jewish camps, all of them were put out when Christ came and lived and was born the way that he was, lived a sinless life, died on the cross, rose again from the grave. That sacrificing stopped. And this is really the beginning of the good news for those we're doing that. Can you imagine, brother, for just a moment? I don't know about you. When I got up this morning, I didn't find a turtle dove. I didn't find a ram. I didn't find a lamb with no blemishes. I didn't have to, well, maybe, I should be careful. We've got cattle farmers and stuff here. Maybe they did that, but not for this reason. I didn't have to cut him a certain way. I didn't have to cut the fat off a certain way. I didn't have to burn it a certain way. I didn't have to do any of that because Christ put those altars out. Amen? Yes, he's done. It is finished. It is accomplished. 
And this, of course, is the beginning of God in earthly time as he lays this out. Now look at verse number 19. Matthew is led by the Spirit of God to give us and show us the kind of man that God chose to be the Lord Jesus Christ's stepfather. Look there at verse number 19. Then Joseph, her husband, being a what? Just man, and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privily. And again, brethren, we see the kind of man that God chose to fill this role of his. That he was going to take a man, the Bible says here, that Joseph was a just man. It simply means that he was blameless according to the law. That it was a practicing, God-fearing Jewish man. He's a just man. God made him that way. And this is what the Bible says. He walked in faith according to the law of God. He was a man of God before these events came. And what really happens here is that he is exposed for what's deep down inside of him. He was a man of God before this befell him, and now all this is doing, it's just exposing who he is. It's exposing the kind of man that he is. And those godly traits come rushing to the forefront when he hears this most difficult situation. See, we read it sometimes. We don't understand actually how difficult this really is and the kind of spot that a Jewish man would be placed in by having something like this happen. It's a stunning thing when you consider this. And of course, his choices, brother, are revealed in the text. They're right here before us. As a Jewish man, what are his choices? Again, a practicing just man. He can publicly humiliate Mary, amen, because of what he perceives to be her immorality, a choice that would definitely lead to her death according to Leviticus law. You realize when one was espoused one to another, it's completely different than what we think of. They're basically set apart one for another, amen, and there's to be none of that kind of nonsense going on. Just think what the liberals think of that, amen. There we are, a man and a woman not engaging in certain things before they get married. What a stunning thing. What a stunning thing to consider. But here we have Joseph, a just man, who's practicing. He said, look, according to Deuteronomy chapter 22, 13 through 21, I could actually humiliate you and have you stoned for what I perceive is this immoral thing. Secondly, he can divorce her quietly, which we see here, that was his intention, to divorce her quietly, amen, and, and uh, just walk away from her, leaving her to raise the child in shame and poverty. And let me tell you, when that happened, they lived in shame and poverty, this is what happened. Thirdly, the third thing he could have done, he can marry her. He can raise the child as if it is his own. An option, brethren, if ever hardly rarely chosen by a Jewish man. Hence, verse number 20. I want you to see this. An option that's very rarely ever exercised by Jewish men. Normally it's option one. We're going to drag out Deuteronomy and we're going to make this thing happen. But because of God and because of his glorious protection of his son, look at verse number 20. Look how God here protects the Lord Jesus Christ even in his birth before he's even born. Look at verse 20. But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a what? In a dream. 
Now, brethren, I don't know if you've ever examined the text and saw how many times that a dream that God sends an angel or that the, Lord, the angel of the Lord himself appears to Joseph and protects Joseph, his family, and the Lord Jesus Christ on numerous occasions through a dream. I want you to see this. Look at chapter 2. Look at verse 12. Here he appears to him in a dream. He says, fear not, Joseph. <laughs> Go ahead and take this, this woman who you perceive as being immoral. Take her as your wife. And we're going to see how he can do that. But again, we see the Lord working through this. The Lord's sovereign plan. His sovereign decrees. Nothing will change it. Brethren, look there. Chapter 2, look at verse number 12. I want you to see this here. And being warned of God in a what? In a dream. That they should not return to, to Herod. They departed into their own country another way. And so here again, God is directing his people. Joseph, Mary, protecting the, the, the virgin birth of Christ. Don't go there in a dream. Look at verse number 13. And when they departed, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise. Here's where I want you to go. Here's where God wants you to go. He's protecting sovereignly his son and brethren. More than that, too, yes, even the very word of Scripture. Why? Look what it says. In a dream, saying, Arise and take the young child and his mother, and flee into Egypt, and be thou there until I bring thee word. For Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. Look at verse number 14. And when he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed into Egypt. Why? Why were they, supposed to, were they thinking of going here? And God says, No, you go over here. Look at verse number 15. And was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I have called my son. So we see God again, fulfilling years and years before these decrees and prophecies that he made concerning his son. And God is directing and ordaining all of this, that it happens precisely, exactly as he what? Said. It's an amazing, stunning thing, brothers, when we consider the depth of this. And I'm barely even hitting the old tops of the waves. Well, look at one more time. Look there at verse 19. Verse 19 of chapter 2. But when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeareth in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. Why? Again, directing his son, fulfilling prophecy. Look there, saying, Arise and take the young child and his mother and go into the land of Israel. For they are dead which sought the young child's life. And he arose and took the young child and his mother and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Echagus had did reign in Judea in the room of his father Herod, he was afraid to go thither, notwithstanding being warned of God in a dream. There it is again. Do You see God directing all of this glorious thing that's going to take place. He turned aside into the parts of Galilee. Time and time and time again in our text, we see the father guarding, protecting, watching over his son. Amen, number one. And number two, guarding, watching, protecting what God has said, his word, his prophecy, those things that are so uh, very important. It's a stunning thing now. Look what he says back here in Matthew chapter 1. So he lays that out. He's getting them right exactly where the Lord is putting them, where he wants them through dreams. And we find here in verse number 20 a most stunning statement. 
a most amazing thing. This is the miraculousness of what we're going to see. Look there again at verse number 20. But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is, what's that word? Conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. What an amazing, stunning thing for the angel to reveal here to Joseph. The angel calls to Joseph's mind that he was an ancestor of David. He calls that royal line of David, which would have immediately altered and alerted him that whatever the angel is going to say, he's calling on the lineage of David. And brethren, from Genesis chapter 3 on, through all of Scripture, all of the Old Testament leading up to what's taking place here, what's happening? You remember Genesis chapter 3 when God said, amen, hey, there's going to be a child, and uh, you're going to bruise his heel, but he's going to, what, wound your head. So you look and consider that terminology that's used there. Obviously, if you're a military person or anybody, you know that a wound to the ankle is not near, isn't deadly. It isn't some, but a wound to the head is. And so all you see from that point on is lineages, God's people, and it's the seed. The seed is followed all the, brethren, listen, the miraculousness of it, all along through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, all the way on down to this point, God has been watching over for this very thing. The thing that men have been waiting for since Genesis, since men have fallen, since Adam and Eve disobeyed God. This thing, a Savior, we need someone to come and save us. Because we can't save ourselves and God orchestrating all through all of history, brethren, bringing this glorious virgin birth to pass. All directed and orchestrated by him. The Holy Ghost, brethren, was indeed the agent for the conception of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Holy Ghost formed the embryo in the womb of Mary thus marking Jesus' birth as unique above all others. You ask, how did this happen? Well, I'm glad you asked, because Luke gives us the details. I want us to turn there this morning quickly. And there's a word that we're going to look at and see here that is so important to us. Again, what took place with what the Spirit of God did has nothing to do with God having relations with men. Nothing. But there's a word here that Luke uses we're going to look at. It's going to define it for us. This miraculous work of God. Look there at Luke chapter 1. Look at verse number 30. Luke chapter 1. Look at verse number 30. And again, this again is a detailed direction of the birth of Christ. It gets a little more. Luke gets a little more detailed. But listen carefully to the words that the Spirit of God has led, leads him to write. Look there, if you would, at verse number 30. Now, you remember just prior to that, the angel Gabriel comes and uh, tells her, you're highly favored. The Lord is with thee. He's blessed. Um, you're blessed among women. Again, not taking Mary too high and not bringing her too low, but just simply stating the words. If you look in scripture, Sarah was highly favored among women. You just look there. That's what the Bible says. So again, keeping things in balance. Look there, if you would, at verse 30. 
And the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary. <laughs> Did you notice the angel had to say the same thing to Joseph? Fear not, Joseph, to take her. He, he says here, fear not, because when an angel showed up, <laughs> brethren, when male angels, only males, there's no female angels in the Bible anywhere. So when a male angel would show up, you know what the, the person would do? They would respond in fear. What is this thing? It's an angel, and they always had to say, fear not. <laughs> Don't fear, Mary. Listen to what he says. The angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son, and shalt call his name Jesus. Again, this is the name the angel gave him. He shall be great and shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. See the consistency. Look at verse 33. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there shall be no end. Then Mary said unto the angel, How shall this be, again brethren, affirming her virginity, seeing I know not a man? So brethren, it's not possible that she had a girl before the boy. Not possible. She has not known a man. Again, let me just reinforce that again because of this weird doctrine. Look at verse 35. And the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. That's the key word. You want to drill in, you want to hone in on that word. What does that word overshadow mean? Therefore, also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. Now again, brethren, as we delicately consider what that word means. That word overshadow means to cover with a cloud. Listen, as in the, as in the cloud of the Shekinah glory in Exodus chapter 24. I'll give you the verse. We don't have time to go look there. Exodus 24, 16 through 18. And the cloud of transfiguration that we see in Luke chapter 9, verses 34, 35, and 36. The idea of overshadowing is not anything filthy of any sort. It is indeed the very presence of God himself. This is really what it means. This cloud, this overshadowing, was a visible manifestation of the glory and presence of God. The same power that was with Moses on the mountain. And with them, men on the Mount of Transfiguration is about to do a miraculous work just like he did there. He is indeed going to overshadow her. And it's going to take time, brethren. And this manifestation of this glory... He's going to do a unique work in Mary's life. This literally is what this means. Now let me just say this. The delicate expression of overshadow is placed here by God, is used again to rule out any and all crude and unbiblical ideas of a mating, a physical relationship between Mary and the Holy Ghost. Go away, Mormons. It's just a stunning thing. And several other religions that teach that kind of nonsense. And some Christians teach, well, hold, let me rephrase. Some people teach that stuff. It's a stunning thing. There was nothing immoral, nothing uncouth, nothing unseen. It is the same power that when he was in, in the mountain in Exodus, when he was on the mountain in Transfiguration, this overshadowing the Lord God, the Spirit of God, put that embryo within her in a most holy fashion. Now again, we look at our text. What then is the glorious purpose of all of this? Again, fulfilling prophecy, protecting the virgin birth of Mary, the virgin birth of Christ. 
And again, brethren, if we had time, which we don't, again, I can take you to Scripture. If you just let Scripture speak, you'll see that later on, Jesus had half-brothers and sisters. You realize that. You understand that. They're spoken clearly of in Scripture. Look at verse 21, Matthew chapter 1. Look at verse 21. Look what the Bible says there. Why is this so important, this holy overshadowing conceiving of the Holy Ghost by way of a virgin. Verse 21, And she shall bring forth a son, thou shalt call his name, what? Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Look at verse 25. And he knew her not till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name, what? Jesus. Now again, brethren, this is important because this is the name that the angel gave him. I've heard people say that they made a mistake when they called him Jesus. Jesus was the Jewish Savior. Jesus is the Savior of all mankind. That's what the world has spoken of in John chapter 3. Jews, Gentiles, the whole world. This name, Jesus, is so important. It's revealed here to Joseph that the child Mary carries in her womb is none other than Jesus, the unique deliverer, the unique Son of God, the unique virgin birth birth son of God. He is unique in that way. Again, whom the world has waited on. Brethren, if you understand the Jewish mindset, the Jews, some of them, as we know, were looking for him. According to the very scriptures we've read, they read Isaiah every year. They read it in the temple. Even today, they're waiting for this deliverer to come. Even when they do their, uh, their, their, their suppers and stuff, when they, have, when they gather together, when they do the feasts, they still leave a chair empty. Go wash sometime. They're waiting. They put the chair there waiting for Elijah to come, waiting for the prophet to come, waiting for the deliverer to come. They're still waiting. But God must open their eyes so they can see that the deliverer came, that he's here and his name is Jesus. And it's specifically God-ordained name because... Brethren, it represents his holy purpose. It represents who he is, that he is indeed the unique deliverer. In fact, that name, Jesus, in Hebrew means Jehovah saves. Numerous times is his name used in the Gospel of Matthew. We understand that. Who's Matthew writing to, brethren? He's not just writing to any old audience. He's writing to Jewish people. He's trying to help them to see that this uniqueness this Jesus, this one that Mary and Joseph called Jesus, that God oversaw with the star. Think of that. That's unique. That the, that the wise, the, 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 the men would, the magician, they'd come and the, the star would stop right over the top of them. And there he is pointing at him. God, you, it's him. He's the unique Savior that Isaiah wrote about and that every other prophet wrote about. He's the one. It's a stunning thing when you Consider the gloriousness of what we see here. Now, the he in our text and the must that we're going to look at <laughs> quickly here, the name. Again, it's the name and what that represents, what his purpose is, and what his purpose was when he came the way that God designed him and ordained him to come. Look at Acts chapter 4, again, a very familiar portion of Scripture to us. When, when, when the angel... When Matthew writes 
the word he, he's very, very narrow-mindedness. There's much narrow-mindedness in the text. And brethren, we live in such a ecumenical place, right? I was telling Wendy, I was driving down the road the other day listening to a Christmas song, and I thought, oh, that's got kind of a neat beat to it, and I've listen- never heard it before, and I'm listening to it. It must be a new one. Oh, yeah, yeah. And the next thing you know, the next line, they're saying, Jesus, Buddha, Muhammad, they're all the same. No, they're not all the same. Christ is unique. Remember, I always say this, you know, his resurrection. I like that when, when Mary shows up at the grave. Do you remember what the angel tells her? He's not here. He's risen from the dead just like he said he would. You go to Muhammad's grave, you know who's there? Muhammad. <laughs> you go to every other man's grave, they're in the grave, not Christ. Amen? He's risen as he said. He's born as God said, continuing to bring forth his glorious plan. Very, brethren, listen to me. Don't be deceived. Don't be misled by today's ecumenicalism. And just say, ah, you're right. (laughs) Joseph Smith is just like Jesus. Yep. Mm -hmm. These men are not like Jesus, not even close. God is very narrow-minded. The truth is very narrow-minded. In fact, a brother, a good brother, a pastor friend of mine, he goes, Fix, you're so narrow-minded. Fix, you're so narrow-minded, you could look through a keyhole with both eyes at the same time. Yes. We must when it comes to Christ. You can't compromise. You can't say, let's just get along to get along. This is eternal. This is truth. This is what God says. And I like that because my eyes cross and I can look through a keyhole both, with both eyes at the same time. <laughs> Remember, Wendy? Look at Acts chapter 4. Look at verse number 12. The he is emphatic that no other, just like Acts chapter 4, verse number 12, listen to what Luke records. Neither is there salvation in any other. For there is none other, what? Name under heaven, given among men, whereby we must be saved. Brethren, put that in your head. May the Spirit of God drill that in us. That's the only way that one can be saved. That's it. There's no other way. Christ, Howard quoted it this morning, right? He's the way, the truth, and the life. There's life in no one else. Their grave is full of their dead bones. Christ is empty. Amen? This is so important for us. The he in our text and the must are emphatic. He's the only way. There's no other way. God would have done it a different way if that's the case. Now, what I want us to do, I have to bring this to a close. And so, you ask yourself, how then, what's the application to me, to us today? How does this apply? Well, let me show you here. Let me read one more portion of our text. Go back there, which we've read, Matthew chapter 1. And I want you to see verse 23. This really, really separates him out. I want you to consider this this morning of what the scripture is saying. What's it saying to us? I want you to consider as we read this text what it means to us. What his birth, his incarnation really means to us. 
Look there at verse 23. We've read it, but we're going to read it again. Behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. Now, brethren, I want you to think about this for a moment. God in the Son, as he is incarnated through the virgin birth, came amongst us. That's what makes him different. He became one of us, only sinless. That he could die for his own people. That's stunning. Emmanuel, God with us. Do we understand that? The depth of God condescending himself down to a planet that, is, that rejected him. Listen, brethren, for the most part, they rejected him out of hand and killed him. That's why I like that with people. So, well, if God would just come here, we, we'd love him. No, you won't. Not if God's not opening your eyes to see who he is because he came and they murdered him on a cross. If God would just prove it, he already has. Through the truth of what we read. Through the truth of what scripture says. He's already done it. Through the virgin birth. Miraculously. He lived again, as I said, a sinless life. How does that apply that God is with us? That he came to be one of us. In flesh, I mean. Listen to what one pastor said as I close. Mankind has fallen into a deep pit of sin. And as he lies there perishing, many would-be saviors walk by and give their advice. The legalist says, you shouldn't fall into the pit. <laughs> I know lots of IFB legalists, believe you me. Well, you're a moron, you shouldn't have done that. When in fact, you might do that. The legalist says you shouldn't fall into the pit. The religionist says, I can tell you how to get out of that pit and avoid other pits in the future. Religion kills. Now, there's biblical religion that James talks about. I'm talking about religion where you're trying to save yourself by your works. Religion kills the soul, period. The pessimist says, you're going to die in that pit. The optimist says, I've seen worse pits than that. The realist says, you need to accept your pit. The spiritualist says there is no pit. Just like preachers today bark them lies, there's no hell. Yes, there is. There's a place called hell. And people who don't trust in Christ go there every day, every single day. But listen, he concludes. But Jesus says, I'll get in the pit with you. That's what he did. Brothers, think about that for a moment, what that means to us. He says, I'll get down in the pit with you, and I will drag you out and lift you up out of that pit. That's what Christianity says. That's what Christ said. This is what he did through his birth. He came. In fact, no one can say it better than inspired scripture, and I'll close with this. With this. Hebrews chapter 2, 14 and 15. Listen carefully. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself, likewise, took part of the same. He came and lived amongst us. 
that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Think of what that means to us. Think of what that means to those this morning whom God has called. You know, it's interesting, we're all lost sheep. There's goats and there's lost sheep. Let me say this, okay? You were lost if you're found. Christ found you. You were a lost sheep. Amen? Sheep are always sheep. They're just lost. Goats never become sheep. You realize this. The depth of that. Do you understand what that means? That maybe this morning, God is speaking to you through the word of God and calling you through this miraculous work that's been done. Don't, as the author of Hebrews says, don't ignore it today. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day if the Lord is calling your heart and drawing you and opening your eyes, drawing you on the spirits, regenerating your mind and your heart towards him. Today is the day, brethren. Today's the day to believe, as Paul wrote in Romans. I said I was closing, I gotta stop. Remember what he said, right? He said this, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will indeed be saved. That's the foundation for everyone's salvation. No one's good enough. No one can ever be good enough. No one can ever offer God anything in exchange for that. What does the Bible say again? For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But gloriously through what he's done, sending his son into the world in, in, in the incarnation through a virgin birth, living a sinless, perfect life, dying on the cross and rising again from the dead, amen? As we always say, Paul wrote, according to scripture, according to the word, this is what he did. When you believe and trust in that, amen, he saves you. He imputes Christ's righteousness to you. Think about this, brethren. And Christ gets what you deserved. He bore God's wrath on the cross. We know exactly when. For three hours, it was dark. God's wrath was poured out on him on the cross. He got what we deserve. We get what he is. The great substitution. What a glorious thing to consider. Amen. Let us pray together this morning. Father, we again are so grateful for the word of God. Father, we pray that as we have examined this text, and, and, and it's, shall we say, maybe a mountaintop examination. We see so many truths there. Father, we thank you that you would as Romans 8 said, that you would indeed deliver him up for us all. That your priesthood was well at work in the life of your son when he was here living. and To the cross he went, as you told Abraham way back in Genesis chapter 22. Well, there's the fire, there's the wood, and there's the knife. Where's the lamb 
Where's the sacrifice? And Abraham said, The Lord will provide himself a sacrifice. And this is what you did through the virgin birth of your son. You provided through your priesthood the perfect sacrifice. Father, we pray that the true believers who are here this morning, that they were indeed edified here by the preaching of your word, that maybe they have grown a little bit in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior. We pray that. We pray those who are lost, the lost sheep, that through the power of your word, not through the speaker, but through the power of your word, as the Holy Spirit applies it to the lives of everyone who hears these words, that maybe today will be the day that they will indeed hear the voice of their shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ. And what did Jesus say? They'll, they'll hear my voice, and they will indeed follow me. A true believer, yes, one who's called by God, will indeed follow, will indeed be changed, converted, and transformed into the image of their Lord and Savior. So, Father, we pray for that as well. Lord, most of all this morning, we pray that you have been glorified, that the word of God here has been handled rightly and straightly, Father, we thank you again for not leaving us here as orphans. And our own thoughts, our own understandings, our own, if you will, crooked minds. Father, we love you and thank you. And as we gather now around the table, we again thank you for all that you have done. All that you have done in saving your people. We thank you now and pray these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.